1: This is Difference Makers. Welcome. I'm Mike Lee, Director of Local Ministries for True Talk 800, now on 106.3 FM in East Portland and Vancouver, 93.9 KPDQ, AM 860, the answer KPM, La Patrona 1640, 93.1 Elray, and 104.1 The Fish. And I'd love to talk with you about getting more people back to your church sharing about your ministry through our free online church directory and our church service live stream directory, expanding your ministry, business, or school beyond your walls, establishing yourself as an authority in your field, and becoming more known through radio, podcasting, and events like the Pastor's Masters Golf Tournament, the KPDQ Pastor Appreciation Breakfast, Reverend Tone DeVarano, and, of course, Fish Fest, building awareness of your company or outreach by hosting our events at your location at no risk to you, Marketing your message or brand directly to your target audience through the latest and most powerful online tools of Salem Surround. And most importantly, if your ministry leader or pastor could use a phone call, a word of encouragement, a cup of coffee, or a connection to others, please email me at MikeLee at KPDQ.com. That's M-I-K-E-L-E-E at KPDQ.com. Sam Moppin is across the glass and across the desk. It's an old friend. I distinctly remember meeting for the very first time at George Fox University as he was the keynote speaker for a breakfast of what used to be the Christian Chamber of Commerce of the Northwest. And I remember being completely blown away by this man's testimony, as well as how incredibly articulate he was. And we're friends to this day. So welcome, Chris Skaggs, founder of Soma Games. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks, Mike, for having me. We've got such a busy palette. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Chris is not only the founder of Soma Games, he is also with the group that used to be called Code Monkeys, which is now Soma Softworks, which I'll ask you to explain as we go on, and also CGDC, the Christian Game Developer Conference. And all of this is mashed up into one overseen cloud called Soma Soulworks. So Soma, spelled S-O-M-A.
2: How did you name your video game company in the first place, Chris Gaggs? It probably goes back to um, got the testimony that you heard right away. It's like, for me, getting into video games was purely a supernatural experience. And uh, and the, kind of the, the quick short story uh, is one in which I had a web design company, and we were doing just fine. And in 2005, there was a big incident. You might have remembered it, it was called the Hot Coffee Mod, where there was a grand theft... Otto was in trouble because there was this pornographic scene hidden in the game and Congress got involved and Hillary Clinton got involved and the daughters of the American revolution got involved. Everyone was was mad. Um, Sony lost like a billion dollars when Walmart pulled it from the shelves. It was this big thing in the news. Anyways, at that time um, I'm reading this news and thinking, wow, that's bonkers. And in uh, clear as day is one of the clearest times where God says like, you're getting into video games. And, uh, and I thought that was a horrible idea. <laughs> I just thought that was a dumb idea. I, I did grow up playing video games, you know, here and there, but it wasn't, I wasn't like a gamer. I wasn't really my thing. Um, but as part of that, which kind of unfolded over several days, um, and it's something that you can read about on the website, if you like, but long story short, the name came from God. Um, he told me like, you're going to be Soma games, man. And, uh, there's all tons of fun, little coincidences about it. But then kind of the next question people ask is like, what's it mean? And, uh, and and he didn't tell me, but I'll tell you what I've learned. One is it's not an acronym. Uh, it's it's a, I get that a lot. So it's not S capital, O capital, M capital. It's not that. It's a word. Um, but in, you just capitalize it more often than not. No, other people capitalize it. Sorry. So it, it's unintentionally capitalized, yes. but it's not meant to be an acronym. Correct. You looks not like one. Correct. But, uh, but in Greek, this is where probably the, the most of the believers would hear. In Greek, it means body. And so when, uh, when Paul talks about like we're all the body of Christ, he uses that word soma. And so it's often referred to as kind of the... the the mystical body of Jesus, so to speak, or the church. But the truth is that word shows up in a bunch of different languages, all meaning different things. So like in Swahili, the word exists and it means something sort of like teaching or learning. Um, In Finnish, it means like pretty or cute. And in, uh, in Hindu mythology, Soma is the drink that the gods would drink to stay gods or even become gods, depending on how you read it. So sort of like ambrosia, um, and I always look at I'm like, that's just a hair away from sort of living water. It's just fascinating. So the word is manifold and uh, we're just named it. That's crazy. It's crazy. So often
1: when it comes to video games that people recognize most the name of the actual game, but not the company or the creator behind it. So by all means, boast on Soma Games' accomplishments and games that we might be more familiar with.
2: Yeah, Sure. Um, we just spent the last many years making games for Redwall. And so uh, if you all heard, this a very, very popular young adult fiction. Um, Talking Mice with Sores, they have great adventures. It's a really, really good series of books. They sold something like 30, 35 million copies. Um, big, big hit in the 80s and aughts. I'm sorry, 90s and aughts. And, uh, and we completed several games on Xbox, PlayStation, uh, uh, and PC. And then we also have some mobile games. So we've been working with Redwall for many, many years. Um, that's probably our most popular effect for sure. That's our most popular. That's our biggest selling games and the biggest IP. Um, we are currently like we've kind of moved off of Redwall for the most part, um, but we are currently making a new game, which is based in our own world. And it's sort of a uh, Blade Runner meets supernatural and Noah's Ark in space. And so it's this wild world. Um, it's kind of a, like a film noir detective fiction set, in this crazy, um, this crazy world. And sort of the secret of the whole thing is, well, well, it's not a biblical story in in most ways. It is a allegorical retelling of the Noah's Ark story. So we set it in this world which is pre-flood and we just really explore like what is Genesis 6? What would that world look like? And we turn it into a video game. That's amazing. So
1: you yourself may have played video games, but you weren't the video game addict not or at all. the computer programming junkie that you would
2: stereotypically tie in with a video game company. Yeah, not not my jam. Um, you know, it was the kind of things like you'd pick it up here and there, right? And, uh, we'd play Halo once in a while. Um, but, but at the time, at the time, so this again, like 2005, the idea of stopping the business that I was in, which was, uh, which was web development to pursue something else was just a bonkers idea. Um, I didn't know the first thing about it. Um, but through a, through a really, uh, to me, convincing set of, of events, it was clear to me that that was God's plan. And ever since then it has been. Providence after, providence after providence after providence, just doors open, things happen, people meet, and I'm convinced beyond doubt that this is where God wants me. And, uh, and now, as of today, I believe, and I always say I believe because I've never done the research, but I believe that we are the longest standing, most prolific video game studio led by Christians in history. Um, now, some of that has to fudge just a little bit because – There are people I know who are in the industry who are sort of more secretly Christian. And so you're not sure if you should count them or not. Um, But insofar as like we've always been really clear about our faith. And that's been kind of our brand. It's interesting you pick
1: that because when I think of a lot of the
2: rock bands that I admire,
1: some of them, maybe Skillet or Striper, go out of their way to say, just call us a rock band. Yeah. We're Christians. We're flagrant with our faith. But just call us a rock band. Don't typecast us. Yeah.
2: So is that somewhat different with what you're doing with Soma Games? I think that's a great analogy, actually. So, uh, so that that idea, like, we're not trying to hide it; it's not a secret. Um, at the same time, like, we're not making Bible games for a Bible audience. Um, so, in that regard, we like to compare ourselves to, say, Narnia or C.S. Lewis. That's kind of the places we think most of. We're not really making allegories either. So, in that if you if you care about the distinction between Lewis and and Tolkien, we're more Tolkien than Lewis. Um, yeah, so I think that's actually a really good thing. You have a, a, another case. Take uh, take U two. You know, obviously Bono, Clear Christian. This is a big part of his testimony. But there's always this question, like, okay, so what do you call U two? Right, certainly one of the biggest, most influential bands ever. But are they a Christian band? Probably that's the wrong word for it. right? not many people would say that.
1: But in Selma's case, you're trying to put out excellent products and at yeah. the same time not hiding your faith. Exactly. So what doors has that opened or perhaps
2: closed over the years in your industry in video gaming? Yeah. So one of the things that happened really early on is people, we'd ask for advice from people like, what well, do you think this is a good idea? And we heard several very well-meaning people who were like, you just, you can't do that. That's a, That's an, That's a middle, that's sort of a no man's land that you can't be Christian making secular products because no one wants that. Like Christians won't buy it because it's a secular product, and secular people won't buy it because you're a, you're a believer. You lose both ways. You lose both ways. But what I found is that that is absolutely untrue. For one thing, and and I don't know even know how this happens, is that demographically, Barna says over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, the majority of Americans identify as Christians. So at the very least, they're generally inclined to to agree with that, if, if even though that is surface level. So you do not alienate the majority of your market. You may or may not. Alienate a tiny sector of sort of the the more aggressively anti Christian people, but they don't want our stuff anyway. So like I don't know that that's a big deal. What we also find is that there's a lot of, for lack of a better word, sort of like uh, closeted Christians who come along. I, I remember being at uh, at Intel, right? And and uh, you have people who come alongside and like, Psst, I'm a Christian too, and I'm like, why are you whispering? Like, what what is the secret here? Right. And so it's this weird little thing. So we've actually had doors open, far more doors open, and easily 10 to 1. Because we're openly Christian, than doors close. I've, I I can think of like two or three cases where people are like, eh, we're not doing that thing because you're believers. Um, but I don't know that that was a bad deal anyway. Like MTV didn't want to work with us because they eventually figured out, oh, you guys, you guys are Christians. That's just too weird for us. Like, good riddance, right? That's <laughs> not a big deal that I lost that contract.
1: Interesting. So... Flashback to young teenage Mike who wanted to be saved and be a good Christian, but also wanted to have fun and not stand out in a negative way. Stand it out in a positive way for the Lord might cost you, but it also might benefit you. Yeah. According to Chris Gags of Selma
2: Games here. And I don't even think might. I, I think that what you'll find is I, I know lots of stories of people who are in some way or another like me. Now, I want to be clear, like we don't just make games and stick a fish on it and call it good. That's not what I'm saying. So I don't mean that sort of like advertising, this is my my, my lead, but the idea like, but we're not hiding it, right? Um, so when we, when we advertise, it's not see that game made by Christians and it's not a Christian video game. It's just if you get to know us even a little, it comes out pretty clearly. And I think that is that will actually get you more relationships like universally just because of the demographics of the country. It's not even a secret. You talk about
1: those surveys, and I think you need to take them with a grain of salt. Because a lot of the survey companies, well, let's just say I can doubt some of the veracity of their content. Because think about it. What are they in business for? For you to buy their statistics year to year. If those statistics never changed, you would have no reason to go back to them. Oh, that's fair. Am I saying that they're being creatively selective with their numbers? maybe not in a way that they're brazenly lying but are they painting things to make it lean one way or the other I would say yes like all the clickbait articles out there sure,
2: sure. how are they titled maybe- yeah, they're often very uh, sort of uh salaciously like like the majority of people don't believe in the Bible or something like this right and then you're like that's not what it says your own data doesn't say that that said just to the point I was making. Any 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 survey, no matter who makes it, still says the majority of of Americans will self-identify as believing in God. And so you can take that like, how serious is that? How deep are those are all good questions? But in the end, they're not like, I hate Christians. That's who they are, not that. So you're thinking it's the
1: vocal, verbal, angry minority that's getting the press and getting these clicks and these articles and this airplay, which paints the country as a lot more hateful than it actually is. It's because it's the big mouse down
2: on one far end of a
1: spectrum or the
2: other. Yeah. And you know, and, and let's be clear, like there's real reasons why people might be mad at sort of the church as an institution. And that ranges from very real social problems to the sexual uh, abuse conversations going on in the SBC and the Catholic church. And like, those are real and they're real grievances, but very few people actually interact at that level. Most people are like, it's just your neighbor, right? This is just a person, you know, and, uh, so the bottom line is I don't think it should be nearly as polarizing as it's become, and it has worked in our case to be a benefit. I'm glad to hear that, Chris. So give us your
1: elevator pitch. Soma Games, Newburgh right on the main drag. It's a beautiful, quirky office Thanks. in the middle of that gorgeous college town. So do you have any needs at Soma Games when it comes to – Staffing, volunteers, testers, marketers, etc.
2: Um, we always have testers, and so we have a whole testing program. So for people who maybe you have, uh, maybe you have a, a child or a, or a teen who's kind of interested in gaming, we're onboarding testers all the time, and that's a nice way for us to get to know people and you kind of interact with them over time. So that is an ongoing, an ongoing need. And, and what started as you know five people is probably at this point come about eh, five or six dozen. We'd probably like about five or six hundred, just because the more eyeballs, the better. It's not a paying gig, but it gets people to play games early, and and we really care about their feedback. So that's an ongoing thing. We have – this might be a good place to kind of say one of the bigger things that's happened over the years is what started as a gaming company and still is. We have also really broadened out into other media in some really interesting ways. I was up in Seattle because we do virtual production, and so this is where – Video games and movies overlap, and that really came out of the blue just about 18 months ago, but it's a fascinating business place. And then we also started a ministry, so like a a legit not-for-profit thing where we call it Soma Soulworks, and that's kind of my big mission— Chris Skaggs is the founder of Soma Games,
1: and when we return, let's find out all about Soma Soulworks. If you'd like more information, check out the website somagames.com. Soma is not an acronym, it's S O M A Games.com. More with Chris Skaggs next on Difference Makers. Welcome back to Difference Makers. My name is Mike Lee. And if you check out the website somagames.com, that's dot com, you can find out all about its founder, Chris Skaggs, and some crazy wild testimonies about this Christian video gaming company. And beyond just the games, Chris, tell us about your new nonprofit group, Soma SoulWorks.
2: Yeah, so uh, let me tell you, another. I think I, I mentioned in the last segment the idea like Soma Games was started really with uh, with God's prompting. A couple years ago, we were just coming out of the Rona, and, and God asked me a funny question. He says, like, what if you were the king of the games industry? What would you do? And you don't get an army, you don't get money, you just get authority and favor. Like, how would you even approach this question? And, Mike, I have been chewing on that question ever since then. It, has, it was a weird question, to be honest, but that seems to be the way that I work really best as I started chewing through things like if for one thing, even to call it uh, to say that there is a king is to imply that, that there's a kingdom and kingdoms are measured different ways. You imagine them different ways like kingdoms. You don't the KPIs of a kingdom are not profit. They're not bottom line. They're not eyeballs like that's not how you measure a kingdom. In fact, but I had to really think through this. It took me a long time. Like, what do you even know if, if a kingdom is succeeding? And it came to me that the notion of a kingdom is people like like a kingdom is thriving and is succeeding and is doing well when it's people are thriving. And so you start thinking about like the king of the games industry. How would our how would our community thrive? What, what is this group of game developers? And then by extension, entertainment, like what would it mean if you were to say, like, I want to build the arts and entertainment sphere that I want my great grandkids to inherit in 100 years? How would I reverse engineer that today? And you have to ask all of the deep questions. What are your imports and exports? What are your assets and liabilities? Who are your enemies and who are your allies? Like it's a whole different way to think about things. And admittedly, it was a quirky way to think about things. Um, but what I have found is that that question has allowed me to approach, um, to approach our next step. I think very differently because, because of what we see that if there were to be Christians, active and thriving in entertainment, several things really have to change. Um, For one thing, there is a, there's an ongoing spirit of exploitation in, in, in arts entertainment. Right. And that comes from the, the young fresh face from, you know, from the Midwest who shows up in Hollywood and yeah, of course, sweetie, we'll make a movie with you. Just take your shirt off and everything will be fine. And, you know, or, or yeah, you can make music, but first you have to whatever, sell all your masters. Right. And you'll never own, Uh, any of the money. I remember thinking when Prince, uh, he had launched his album. He's like, by the way, I'm also totally bankrupt. And you're like, how could this be a thing? How could this possibly be true? And the thing is like, but that's the normal story, right? That's a normal story in arts entertainment is that artists by and large, creative people are not really motivated by money. I mean, kind of everyone wants to kind of like fame and fortune, so to speak, but the most of them really just want to be creative. They just want to keep doing stuff. And and it's one of the reasons why in in a, in the venture space, there's a really, really robust mechanism to decide how much is money worth, how much is equity worth, how much are found, like, they're very active in this because it matters, right? And so if I'm 5% off in my valuation of my company, that adds up to a lot of money, so they care. They really care about it. But in arts and entertainment, we just don't do that. We don't think about what's the value of the property, what's the value of the artists. That's not how we think about it. You have publishers who, by and large, they're like, I will give you enough money to live barely. And then I will take 90% of your money forever. And, uh, and you've probably seen, uh, there's a, there's a local guy here who's really, really good, like world-class violinist, you know, but I remember a, a friend of ours who, 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 who talked to him after he just done this brilliant performance in front of thousands of people, at all of a sudden, like he can't pay his mortgage. And it's not because he's like a bum, right? It's not because he's like feeding it away on, on meth or something. It's because that's not how he thinks. And the people who sell the tickets take advantage of the situation. And and so that's got to change. So there's some things about just like how are arts entertainment done? And let me be clear, like games are now an art form. In fact, here's the story I wanted to, I wanted to tell you back in the thirties, um, the president of Paramount, who was a believer, wrote a letter to all the Bible colleges back East. And he says, he says, movies are blowing up, man. We cannot, Keep on track of this. We we are we are making movies so fast, and we need writers who can write scripts who have a good biblical worldview who understand goodness and and you know good and evil who can write all these scripts because we can't keep up. And these Bible colleges just met him with silence for months until one of them finally wrote back and says, "Actually, I would rather that my students went directly to hell than they sort of stopped in Hollywood along the way." Right? To see the look on your oh. face, you're like, "Oh my gosh." <laughs> And you hear that story like that's got to be an urban legend. That can't be real. But it's totally real. That really, really happened. And now here we are 100 years later. And by and large, most Christians complain that Hollywood doesn't put out movies that represent us. They don't represent our worldview. Like like, Hollywood feels corrupt. But it's our fault. Like we as the church pulled away from Hollywood at the time when we could have really changed it. And we, we, we thought it was icky. We're like, those people take drugs, and they're weird, and they're probably gay. And so we just don't want to talk to them. They're, they're, their weirdness will get on us. And, and so the whole church, by and large, abandoned arts and entertainment. And then what do you got left? And, I, and I, I have this conversation with people who I'm like, whether you like it or not, video games is the Hollywood of tomorrow. And in that 100 years since the 1930s, basically culture. So we're going to call this film, movies, TV. That is America's second largest export to the whole world, just behind grain. So we have influenced the whole world through Hollywood, for better or for worse, whatever you decide to take on that. And gaming will be better. Gaming as a sector is already much bigger than, than film and movies. It's much bigger than music. You can take all the music on your phone, all the sports, all the, all the movies, add them all up, and games is that number times two. And it's huge. I think it was $180 billion last year. It grows usually like like 10% year over year, which is almost always exceeds expectations from even the most aggressive analysts. Like gaming is enormous. That's the cultural engine for the next 100 years. And where will the church be? So you kind of enter this question on this last segment, like what do I need? Like that's what's happening for me right now. Is this is sort of my passion is what will the arts and entertainment be in 100 years? We need to start now. And we cannot have another thing like that like like that letter, right, from, from a, I don't know what Bible college it was. We can't have that happening, and we have to engage. And, uh, you know, I go to a lot of investor events, and a lot of rich Christians have this idea that they want to influence culture. And I'm like, this is culture. It's making movies. It's making TV. It's making songs. It's making games. This is culture. Everything else is downstream. Because it's the entertainment. It's the ways that we celebrate. It's the ways that we that we lift up virtues and values. It's the way that we provide a v- moral vocabulary. Happens in our entertainment. It happens through when, when I look at Sam and Frodo, I learn what self sacrifice looks like. Or I look at Will and Grace, and I learn something else. Like it's not neutral. Um, but it, the thing is, like it is the it is the kind of thing where entertainment is an expensive business, and we don't need we don't need people making one off films. And don't get me wrong, like those are good. So there's some there's some really good. Christian films who are making good change. Don't get me wrong, but it's not nearly enough. We need studios. We need streaming services. This is going to take billions of dollars over decades to make this work, but it is the investment that is worth so much. It's in your kids. It's in your grandkids, and that will change the world. Growing up in the eighties, Chris Skaggs, I remember having it shoved down our throats
1: in youth group, at least in my teenage eyes Oh, well, avoid this and avoid that, whether it's music or movies or technologies or video games, because all those people are bad. Mm -hmm. And then they would tell us, well, if you like the band Boston, you ought to listen to Petra instead. And I remember thinking to myself, all of Petra's album covers are rib off of Boston's. Exactly. (laughs) Now, I might appreciate their music more now, but it really seems like the mentality of All we need is a Christian equivalent to what's popular. It just seems counterintuitive. It seems like uh, it's almost like it's destined to be a lesser version of what's hot out there rather than taking what you have
2: artistically, creatively and running with it. Yeah. and You know, there's a there's a long conversation here, but I think part of it is that by and large, the Protestant church. And I don't think this is nearly as true on the Catholic side. But by and large, the Protestant church has never figured out what to do with the arts at all. And so it's always been suspicious. And you think about this, you go to almost any Protestant church and the walls are blank, you know, or they have a Thomas Kincaid painting. But by and large, like they, they don't celebrate even the visual arts. And you know that every single congregation has musicians, they have creatives, they have potters. All those people are in the congregation, but none of it is seen or celebrated or shared. And I think part of it comes from Sola Scriptura, like An art piece, by and large, is at its best when it's asking a question as opposed to answering a question. And so I think in the church context, we just don't know what to do with it. And God forbid someone should misunderstand, right? Like, what if they draw the wrong conclusion from your painting? What if they draw the wrong conclusion from your uh, from your your song? Um, Somehow that would be intolerable. And so and so the, the thing is, like, in heaven, you know what won't be in heaven Evangelists, but there will be artists. You know what won't be in heaven is fintech, but there will be artists. When you look at Revelation and the kind of the story of like the new heaven and the new earth, the Palingenesia, what you see is all of this creative activity. Jesus talks about the feast and the music and the, all this stuff going on. Someone had to make all that. Someone has to play the instruments. Someone has to make the food. Someone had to build the, the violins and the tables. Like all of that is creative. All of that falls under that sphere of arts and entertainment, and that is eternal. So many of the other things we spend our time on today, they can be really good and important, but art is eternal and we haven't known in the church what to do with it. And we've wounded a lot of people. We wounded a whole lot of artists who come to me in one way or another and say, I knew that my art, maybe I'm a writer or a musician or a dancer or whatever else. I knew that this was like in my soul. I was made for this, but it had no place in the church. And so I had to choose. And the church made me often felt like they had to choose. Like you can't do both, right? You can't, for example, go to Hollywood and be a believer. You can't write that book um, and be a believer. Like you can't do those. You have to choose. And it's nonsense. But I find these people who are incredibly wounded um, and they come to me often just to be noticed that their art matters, right? Just to, And so if good and the beautiful and true are the three kind of big, big deals, there's always this thing in which we've done a pretty good job about recognizing the true but we've kicked the beautiful off the bus
1: why do you think that is my wife was having the same debate lately church buildings even have become incredibly practical multi-purpose rooms what else can we do it in yeah. here maybe it's a basketball court maybe it's an easter event. maybe it's a concert maybe it's a, a school auditorium but we don't see the epic beauty of the cathedrals and the stained glass windows and art so different and evolving. Why do we, the church mainstream Christianity, not put a value on art like we do on other things and productivity
2: and busy work. I know some of it probably goes all the way back to reformation where there was a, there was a aspect of a much larger conversation that said that all these cathedrals were a waste of money that we spent so much time and money. We could have been feeding the poor. And so we made the big church. So no part of it was that and there was an austerity that, that came out of some of those, or, you know, the Anabaptists and stuff like that became part of the culture was was a was a money issue. Like art's expensive, you know, and maintaining it is expensive. So that was part of it. But I think it had the unintended consequence of devaluing art entirely. Um, and so you wind up in this sort of like uh, the secondary question that has just never been looked at. Um and, and yet, I, you know, when this is one of kind of my big passions is to advocate for beauty for its own sake. Beauty doesn't need to be practical. You think about how God created our world and it is it is scandalously pretty and for no purpose at all. You, everything from like the ways in which God makes flowers and the sky and, you know, antlers on animals like there is this incredible wastefulness that goes into beauty. And yet it is so true to God's heart. It is it is. It is central to his nature is A, to be creative and B, to be beautiful. Um, and we have lost that by and large because beauty cannot be measured. It cannot be monetized. It cannot be documented. It's so dis it's so like soulish that I think in a, in in lots of church contexts that we're always trying to like the scientific methods, like how can I measure that? How can I turn that into a program? We don't know. We can't do that with beauty. And so it just doesn't have a slot. Um, and, and so I don't think it's because there's a lot of people who would say art is evil. Is that no one, to my knowledge, has really engaged in this deep theological question of like, what is beauty, what is art, what is its role in the kingdom, and having that as part of our kind of robust theology? I
1: wonder if it's fear, and I wonder if that fear comes from ignorance or inexperience. So I think a lot of people, Chris Gags of Soma Games, would say. Well, how do you go to these industry events and rub shoulders with and have conversations with people who come up with incredibly evil, graphically violent, anti-God type games out there and still be peers within the same industry and be able to to respect, well, that's that's a horrific thing, but you did a really good job on it, (laughs) And, and hopefully have them see something different in you and say, oh, well, you don't automatically
2: hate me despite the fact that you're a Christian? Right, right. I think that, uh, you know, for me, I had to get over a lot of this conversation where there was a time at which I was worried that sin and darkness was contagious. Um, that in some way, being around it, being near it, that it, uh, that it I had a genuine and I think good desire for my own ethics, morals to be holy, right? I, I, and I, I don't dismiss that at all. But somewhere in there, I was afraid that being around it, being near it would automatically corrupt me. And maybe when I was younger, it would. You know, maybe like when, when my thoughts about right and wrong, when my practices of right and wrong, when my own maturity was low, maybe that was actually true. And I was prone to temptation. I was prone to waver. But as I have matured and become more and more aware of my own sense and of God, I'm not worried about it. And so in the same way, like Jesus can hang out with the tax collectors and the hoes and the junkies and all that stuff. It doesn't matter to him. Their ickiness doesn't get on him. His holiness infects them. And that, I think, is a shift that all of us need to run through. At some point, we have that level of maturity where I don't need to be afraid of the darkness anymore. The darkness needs to be afraid of me. Chris Skaggs is the founder of Soma
1: Games and eventually Soma Soulworks. Check out the website somagames.com. More with Chris Skaggs next on Difference Makers. You're listening to Difference Makers. My name is Mike Lee, and Chris Skaggs is the founder of Soma Games and Soma Soulworks based out of Newburgh, Oregon. Beautiful downtown Newburgh, Oregon. There you go. Give us your elevator pitch for those who might be completely
2: oblivious to Soma Games. Soma Games makes excellent narrative story adventures across multiple platforms and multiple titles. Our most successful product has been based on the Redwall IP. And so if you love Redwall, you will love what we've done. And if you don't know Redwall, you should read it because it's fantastic. One of the best books, I think, of the of the last 50 years. Can and you it, tell
1: us how you fell into Redwall? How did you get
2: that contract versus make it up something that's Redwall-like? Yeah. Again, it was another one of our Providence stories. What wound up happening was a friend of a friend had his own path to achieve a master license for the property, and he came to us one day and says, hey, I understand you guys uh, can make video games. I've got this Red property. Could you make me a little mobile game to kind of act as a as an advertising piece? Now at the time I had never heard of Red Bull. I didn't know what it was, but I kind of hearing him tell about it, I'm like, okay, I there's I'm sure there's adventure, there's, you know, there's stuff there that we can work with. I'm sure we can make a game. You just let us know when you're ready to start and a budget. And we'll just kind of we'll just do that. What I didn't know was that that same night, at that point, uh, my my friend John Burquist he had a dream. So he writes me an email the next day. and says, I had this dream in which we were working on this big red ball game. And I'm trying to figure out where that came from. Like, did we say something? And I'm having one of those, you know, it's funny. You should ask that because I just got this call yesterday uh, from a guy who, who wants us to make a game. It's weird, weird coincidence. Well, what was even weirder is that, that night was the night that the author passed away. So Brian Jakes passed away on the very night that John had his dream and the very day that we, um, that we had this first phone call and we hear it now, of course, that wasn't immediately in the news. So we hear about this weeks later, but then you start putting the pieces together. and You're like, that's weird, right? The arms, the hair on your arm starts to go up and you're like, what is happening? And correct me if I'm wrong. Redwall had no
1: recent news stores or any reason to be front of anyone's mind, right? No. Nope. Nope.
2: And I think probably along the, you know, it was a big property. So I'm sure that I saw it in a bookshelf somewhere. So I, it's not like I was utterly unaware of it, but it's not anything we ever talked about. So no, it was not anything top of mind. And he passed away suddenly. It wasn't like he was sort of, you know, like not that people were expecting it. So that was sort of the first chapter. Then over a couple of different years, you can imagine at that point, all of the dust flies up in the air with the publishers, with the family, everything else. And so, there was a long pause there where that all had to get sorted out. Like right? what happens with the estate? What happens with the contracts? All that had to get sorted out. So probably another three years was sort of just waiting. All we really had was kind of a letter of intent. But as we started rolling, little by little, we we wrote I, I want to say we posted in 2014 was a blog post where we could finally say, We're working on this, on this project. That was the first place where I realized that we had a tiger by the tail. Because within a couple of days, I have a letter written in pencil uh, from a soldier in Afghanistan who's telling me about how much Redwall saved his life. He's like, he's going on for pages about like that book changed me here. It made me the man I am here. It really did this here. And, uh, and I'm so glad that, that a company like Soma, that a Christian company is going to get this property because I know that you'll treat it right. You'll honor it. You'll respect it. That's so good. His closing line was don't mess it up, except he didn't say mess. And, uh, and we are, we're looking at this. I'm like, what is going on? But really shortly we start getting a bunch of these notes of people who read, absolutely shaped their life. It is deep, deep in their bones. They love this thing. And we're realizing, Oh my gosh, like what, how did we, how did we wind up here? And then I have people who from a Hollywood, like kind of big budget idea. We're like, you're a tiny, tiny little company in Newberg with basically no history. How do you have this IP? And I'm like, Ah, Jesus, I got to tell you, like it just it fell in our lap. Now, that said, we also knew like this was a responsibility, not an opportunity. This is something where something really precious to a lot of people was being handed to us and we had to shepherd it as best as we could. So we spent a good amount of time learning the property, reading the books, really digesting what is it that we're that we've got ourselves into And Kim really loved it. Like, it is a beautiful story. Uh, And I should say, it's 22 novels written over many years. So I say story, but it's like several, several stories. And it's all these anthropomorphic woodlanders, right? So it's otters and badgers and mice and voles who have this sort of ongoing struggle in a medieval world against evil vermin, right? So that's usually rats and weasels and stuff like this. And by and large, it's a pretty classical, low fantasy story, right? There's not magic or anything like that, but there's no humans, and so you have you have all of the typical stuff that you would get in a good adventure story. Except the thing about Redwall is at every opportunity, they stop what they're doing and have a feast. It happens all the time. <laughs> There's, there is so much work about food and feasting. And and this became this really critical piece that we realized that in some really deep way, I think most people experience Redwall Abbey, which is the kind of a that the name where it gets this book is a, is a giant church is a giant abbey they experience redwall as sort of a glimpse of heaven it's a place of abundance and joy in the midst of chaos and loss and and kind of all the crazy world around them but this one place represents goodness and healing and every opportunity to have a sandwich you should have a sandwich because you never know when your next one's going to come and it's just a really beautiful way to look at good and evil i think that's a very very touching for, for a young adult. Oddly
1: enough, what struck me when you shared this story about every opportunity you have to, to feast together, have a sandwich together, you ought to take advantage of. I'd have to say that despite the fact I've had better salaries, shorter commutes, better titles, better benefits and pay, that this is the best office environment I've ever worked in. And it starts up at the top, obviously, with Jesus. But my general manager, Dennis Hayes, is always celebrating things. We have these monthly Birthday meetings and work anniversary things. Oh, congratulations! You were with the company for twenty three years, and and I love the fact that you've pointed out that Redwall really took the time to point out that gathering together and feasting together is of value. Yes, if for no other reason than to celebrate with those who are celebrating, mourn with those who are mourning, and just get together and have
2: these times, whether or not they're producing return on
1: investment or something yeah, like yeah, that.
2: Yeah. I think um, I think the, there's only two times in my life I've wanted to write a book, but one of them was about hospitality. And and I think growing up um, and I didn't grow up in the church, so I, I didn't really uh, come to know Christ until I was in the Navy. But as I'm learning the lingo, because it it comes with lingo, right? I'm learning all the people talking about spiritual gifts and everything else. And when the idea of the gift of hospitality was first explained to me. It was sort of explained in a Martha Stewart sort of a way. And in, without really saying this out loud, I just assumed it was a gift for girls, sort of like giving birth. Like it was like okay, that was a girl gift. It didn't cross my mind until much later how much I really love hospitality. And the gift of hospitality has been all throughout my life. And I love to have company over and I love to feed spaghetti to people. I just I've always loved this. So and where did that come from? I think it was just cooked into me. Like as long back as I can remember, I don't remember it ever being taught. My folks weren't really about that. It was something that I think I just leaned into for literally as long as I can remember. I loved having company. I love entertaining. I love bringing people together. And food became such an easy way to do that, um, which also led me to cook. So I love to cook. And I remember a friend of mine, um, she comes over for spaghetti night and she – she bites into a meatball and the rolls the, her eyes roll back in her head, and she's like, "That's the best meatball I've ever had." And the look on her face was that moment of like, "Yep, like that's what heaven looks like." That that, that ridiculous like eyes roll back in your head because this is so beautiful and good. It can happen in food, and it's so physical. It's so incarnational. I just love that aspect of it. I'd love to see your meatball recipe <laughs> posted at SomaGames.com.
1: If you've got nothing better to do, put a tab, Chris's Meatball Recipe. But you mentioned not growing up in the church and coming to know the Lord in the Navy. So can we backtrack a little? Sure. What is the history of Chris Skaggs? Ready to grow up in the first place, Chris?
2: Yeah, I grew up in Southern California, a place called Running Springs. And if a lot of people, more people know Big Bear, um, which is a ski resort uh, about two hours east of Los Angeles. And you probably stopped at a gas station on your way to Big Bear. And that was my house or not, not the gas station, but that town, little tiny town. I was
1: thinking you actually lived at the gas station.
2: (laughs) So we were like small town. I want to say two or 3000 people at the time. I'm I'm not sure that's right, but it's, it's around the neighborhood. Um, My father was a fireman up there, which was really cool. Like that's the best job for For, a a kid to have. Yeah. My dad's a fire. My dad's a fireman. Right, (laughs) You ride on the fire engine when the little, you know, parade comes around and, you get to confiscate other kids' fireworks. It was awesome. Um, so I love that. Um, my mother, um, very, very good at uh, entrepreneur. She was actually sort of an under an, an underappreciated entrepreneur. She could she was good at starting businesses, and uh, she had a nursery for a while and worked at different places. She was really, really wonderful woman. So I grew up. I was adopted when I was an infant. Um, this is a family who raised me. Um, and they were both sort of ex-believers. So one of them was raised Catholic. One of us was raised Episcopalian. And by the time they were adults, they just sort of fell away from it. Nobody was antagonistic or nasty about the faith, but uh, we would, when we would visit grandma and grandpa for holidays, we'd usually kind of talk about church. Often we'd sort of threaten to go to church and never go, but it was just sort of in the background. Um, It really wasn't until high school where a couple of my friends, I'd I'd made a new set of friends, um, which let me tell this quick story. When I was younger, uh, my friends all started to get involved in drugs and alcohol and, uh, and we were kind of just going down that path without thinking much about it. And at one point I got cast in a play and the day that I'm on my first rehearsal, all my buddies got drunk, stole a boat, and got arrested. And I had kind of a there but for the grace of God go I moment or I would have said it that way, but I realized that would have been me. And that became a pivot in my life where I started hanging out with a different group of people. Many of whom were drama geeks, but also believers. And so they would invite me to youth group. And and that seemed like a pretty cool thing to do. It was, they had fun events and something to do. Pretty girls were there. So I had lots of reasons to kind of hang out with that. By the time I graduated, I would have told you I was a Christian. I'd probably said the sinner's prayer a couple of times, Um, but it didn't stick. And it wasn't meaningful. It didn't actually change my life. Um, It was just a thing that I'd sort of agreed to. But in the Navy, I I was on the USS Kitty Hawk. And I had a lot of time on my hands so back in the day. I don't know if you remember this. There was this advertisement. It's not just a job. It's an adventure. It, it was, was a trip. job. It was totally a job. I was just, I had a desk on a ship, but otherwise it was
1: paperwork. I even remember the Saturday night live parody commercial of that. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I was sitting there <laughs> peeling like a pile of potatoes. <laughs> so
2: you were in, I was in, I was in for four years, a uh, 90 to 94. And, uh, and when we were, uh, when we were out in the middle of the Pacific ocean, I I basically started talking to God and he talked back and I read all the C.S. Lewis books and that probably Lewis of all the things made it possible for me to think that smart people could be Christians, too, Um, that you could be logical and rational because I was so afraid of being a fool, you know, of like, oh, my gosh, I'm just not going to believe that hokey pokey stuff. But Lewis really opened a door for me. And uh, and that was when my life really started to change. So art,
1: intellectually driven art in C.S. Lewis actually drew you closer to God because there is a stereotype out there. And like many stereotypes, there's partial truth to it that there is an often beautiful simplicity about Christianity and some Christians that make people want to avoid it altogether. Mm. Oh, well that's for
2: them. Yeah. I don't need that. I'm my own person. Yeah. And and I I reckon you you read a, if you haven't seen the most reluctant convert, by the way, it's quite interesting. Lewis talks about his own, his own conversion being really a battle with his pride Um, because he was smart. He was articulate. He had all the, all the good thoughts and the idea that it could come down to something that at his point was so counterintuitive and non-intellectual was just offensive to him. It was just odious. And so he, the way he tells his stories at some point, all of the other bits came to make sense, both from a, soulish perspective, like his, his awareness of the power of beauty in his life. So that's in, in his own thing and joy. He called it joy. Um, but also that there actually was some really strong intellectual meat here. that he just never considered that was, that was very attractive to me that, that way of looking at the world. I never heard any of these ideas. So reading mere Christianity, reading the screw letters, they really opened my eyes to a different way of thinking that seemed very rational. That allowed me to be open to the supernatural.
1: Interesting. I think sometimes, there are churches that go so far out of their way to be welcoming that they kind of water down the product yeah. to avoid risking being offensive over anyone's head. But I love the churches that just love people exactly where they are at the moment they walk through the doors and figure somewhere down the line, Jesus is going to get into this person's heart yeah. and then they'll decide what they want to wear, what they want to yeah. Eat, drink, smoke, the, the words that they use. But if we make it about Jesus and the Bible as opposed to, well, for you to fit in here, you must fit A, B, C, D, and E, that's not
2: yeah. really a healthy environment or certainly not a welcoming one. Well, and I have a little bit of a different thought over this over the years is we, we really naturally have grade school, middle school, high school, and they're designed for age appropriate teaching. I don't know why we shouldn't have some structure like that in the church is like, you're a new believer. Like let's get the basics. And you know, and level two is this and level three is this. You may or may not want to go up the chain, but those could be in one church if you did that, but they could also be in different churches. And I, I'm actually really comfortable with the idea that there are for lack of a better word, sort of maturity appropriate levels. Like there needs to be seeker sensitive churches for the people who are just getting into this. And they don't know, they don't know even what the word holy means. Um, but somewhere in there, I think that there's a tendency to kind of top out somewhere around a middle school level of of, of teaching. And we just sort of stop there. And I, I can't tell you, like, how many folks I've met who you, you start going into the deeper things. Remember when Paul says, let's not go over the basics, like laying hands, like laying on of hands, stuff like this, and reading that saying, I don't even know what you're talking about. If that's the basics, I skip the basics. But once you're there, like, you you know, or the same things like you should be eating meat when you're drinking milk, like grow up. Like this should be part of what we do in the church. And uh, and I think often we don't.
1: Fantastic insights from the founder of Soma Games, Chris Skaggs. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. I am so glad to be here. Thank you, Mike. And it's good, good to reconnect with you after all these years. It has been too long. Can you tell us about the CGDC, the Christian Game Developer Conference, this year?
2: Yeah. Um, this is happening uh, July 21 through 24 down at Azusa Pacific University. Um, for many years, it was up here in Portland, uh, but we recently took it on the road. If you have any interest in being a game developer or if your sons or daughters are interested in being game developers, this is a great place to get oriented on the industry. You're going to meet pros. You're going to meet hobbyists. You're going to meet universities. All that will be down in Azusa Pacific, and uh, and it's, it's an annual event, so we'd love to have you there.
1: Thanks so much again, Chris Skaggs, founder of Soma Games, Soma soulworks All the best with you, your company, your family, Redwall christian game developer conference and all that you're doing i really appreciate your insights thank you mike thank you very much and thank you for joining us on difference makers